0: Uh, if your Bibles are open to Luke 18, we'll be reading verses 18 through 30, Luke chapter 18, 18 through 30. Probably a familiar story. Uh, if you've been to church at some point in your lifetime, maybe you're really new to church, but if you're not, uh, you've probably heard this story, and it is, uh, it is a familiar one. And We're going to start with the 18th verse. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept since my youth. So when Jesus heard these things... He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brother or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray again. Lord, we just ask right now that you would minister by your Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears. Lord, you know what each person needs. This text may be for one person in one area, but for someone else, completely different. We pray that your Spirit would speak individually to each heart. We would receive and be strengthened. And maybe if someone doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, this will be the day they would surrender to you. To your name we pray, amen. This story, as I mentioned, familiar probably to many of you, Uh, it's actually recorded in three of the Gospels. You can find it in Matthew and Mark as well. So all uh, three of the four Gospels record this taking place. This is a parable. This is actually an interaction Jesus has with someone who is young, who is wealthy, uh, and really has everything that most people want In life, and if you kind of look at uh, our own country today, uh, you've probably have noticed that much of what is advertised to society is, if you could, if you were only younger, if you only had more money, if you only had all the things you could possibly attain in life. I mean, this is what Hollywood is about. This is what television's about. This is what the movies are about. This is what everything that we constantly get. The billboards everywhere we go constantly tells us you would finally have it all if you just had more of what it is you are currently searching for. This guy had a lot, didn't he? He was the, the scriptures are clear he was very rich, very rich. But he did come to a conclusion that there was he thought there was something he couldn't buy. And that was the afterlife. He came to the conclusion, how do you purchase the afterlife? How do you ensure that you can continue a great lifestyle after you die? Uh, because being Jewish, he certainly believed there was an afterlife. You know, some people don't believe there's an afterlife. Uh, but if you're born in a Jewish home at the time of Christ, you certainly still believe there was an afterlife. But how can he ensure that he, in the next life, has just as much enjoyment because he had the things that most people are looking for in this life If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, More Than Recognition. More than recognition. It's one thing to recognize something. That's a good thing we recognize something. But when it comes to hearing from Jesus, it, it takes more than just recognizing it. More than just acknowledging it. More than just saying, I think going to church might be a good thing. You actually not only thought it was a good thing, you're here this morning. You went beyond recognizing that as valuable but you actually took the steps to be here this morning, not to hear from me, but to hear from the Lord. And we'll go through this text and the first thing I want to look at is this word recognition. Recognition. This young man comes and recognizes that Jesus really is someone that he needs to hear from. In Mark 18 17 we find uh, in Mark's account of this. It says, now as he was going out on the road, one came running and he knelt before him. Mark gives us a little more insight than, than Luke does in this one thing, that he actually comes and kneels before him. I don't know how many people you in your entire lifetime have actually gone and kneeled before. Has anyone ever done that? I never have. I can't think of a time in my life when I ran up to a person and knelt before them but we're not talking about just any person here, are we? He runs up to Jesus, and he actually kneels down before him. Rich, powerful, has it all. And this would be a little bit of a spectacle, too, to, to kneel down in front of somebody. People are like, well, would you ever think he'd do this? Has he lost his mind? He's listening to the Nazarene guy. He really believes what he's saying. I don't know Jew, you, but don't you wish... You've watched enough uh, people that have it all. Don't you wish everyone with wealth and power would at least recognize that Jesus has the answers to life? That everyone that has wealth and power would at least recognize that Jesus has the answers that they need. You say, that's that's a big first step, wouldn't you agree? A big first step is at least recognizing that Jesus has these answers. It's hard to get any further than that unless you first believe that. And this man does. Kneels before Jesus. Matthew Henry said it's a blessed sight to see persons of distinction in the world distinguish themselves from others of their rank by their concern about their souls and another life. Matthew Henry saying it's a blessed thing when you see people of great distinction actually take stock of the fact that, hey, I'm not going to live forever. His question that he asks of Jesus And by the way, we know he's young uh, not because of this text. Matthew tells us he was young. So if you've ever heard the term rich, young ruler, you say, well, I just read that. Where did it say about young? Well, that's in Matthew's account of it. Matthew tells us he's a young man, tells us twice he's a young man. Mark tells us he kneels before Jesus. And so we get a little more context when we kind of look at the 360 view from the other Gospels, why it's always important to read all of your Bible. The more of you read, the more you'll understand it. But he's, he's, he asked this question, how can, I her- how can I inherit eternal life? And this question, it's very similar, if you've read in the book of Acts, you know, Paul and Silas, when they're in jail, uh, when, the, when the jail shakes with an earthquake and all the chains come off, and the Philippian jailer is about to take a sword and plunge it into himself, Paul stops him, and that jailer says to Paul and Silas, sirs, in Acts chapter 16, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He asked that question of Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Albeit the Philippian jailer asked it with a little more urgency at that moment because he had a sword about to plunge in himself. But this is the one question that everyone on earth needs to ask. And not only needs to ask it, but they need to get the correct answer. Amen? Amen. It's one thing to ask this question, but you need to get the correct answer. If someone says, well, all roads lead to heaven, that's not the right answer. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's really the most important question in life, this question, how can I escape judgment and gain heaven? Because judgment's coming for everyone unless Jesus intercedes. Like the Philippian jailer, this young ruler, he was convinced that he was talking to someone who had the definitive answer to the question. You know it's know good when you're talking to someone who has the answers? You love to meet people that are su- subject matter experts. I do. They don't, they don't really enjoy m- r- running into me because I'm liable to pick their brain a little bit and glean a little bit. But some do. Some that like to pour out their life love to, to kind of help you grow if they're subject matter experts. You, know, you heard from Christine, if I want to hear about, learn more about adoption, I'll probably talk to her, because she probably would know a lot more about it than most of us in the room. But you want, to, you want someone that knows the answers, and this man believes that Jesus has the answer to this question, and he humbles himself in such a way, he's kneeling before Jesus to ask this question, and he calls Jesus good teacher. The emphasis here is that the, the word good teacher in the Greek here, it, it means to say, Excellent or distinguished one who is fitted to teach. Excellent or distinguished one who is fitted to teach. He's like, this guy knows more than the other teachers in his mind. He's got the answers. Remember how Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night? He was convinced that Jesus had answers that the other guys didn't have. And I'm sure if we were walking the earth at that time, those of us that are born again, we saw the same thing in Christ just through the pages of Scripture or through some public testimony or or preaching of the Word of God, Uh, but uh, we would go back and we would see, wow, Jesus really did have the answers to everything. He recognized and believes that Jesus will have the answer to this most important question, which is essential to finding and receiving salvation. If you don't find the answer to this question, there is no opportunity for salvation. If one doesn't believe Jesus has the answer, they'll never find it. Did you hear me on that? If one doesn't believe Jesus has the answer, they'll never find the answer. Because he is the answer. It's not other religions, it's not more stuff. Jesus is the only one with the answer for salvation. And by the way, when Paul answers the Philippian jailer for Acts chapter 16, here's really cool. You know where Paul got his answer from? Jesus. Right? Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus. So wherever Paul went, If people had this fundamental question, what must I do to be saved, Paul wasn't saying, well, here's what I came up with. Paul got his answer from Jesus. So when you're talking to someone at your workplace, you're talking to someone, and they ask you, where would you get this answer? You say, I got it from Jesus. You don't say, you got it from Pastor Tim. You didn't get it from me. It's in the Bible. If I didn't exist, the answer was still here. So then we get this answer from the Lord. We get our answers from Jesus. We give them to other people. We're simply passing along something. It's eternally important. But of course, he wants to know more. He wants more than just the answer. He wants the assurance that he'll, in fact, have eternal life. Not just the answer to the question, but the assurance that he'll have eternal life. But before Jesus gives the full answer to his question, he challenges man's perception of Jesus, of the law and of himself. He challenges perception of Jesus himself, of the man, but also the law. Let's look at the next. If you're taking notes that we first looked at recognition, let's look at reproof. Jesus' response in verse 19. You know, Jesus, he, he all, so often responds in ways that we have no idea this is coming kind of answer, response, right? Um, his intellect is limitless, far beyond us. He understands how to turn our thoughts and attention in such a way to capture where we're really at. And Jesus says in this reproof, why do you call me good? And he says, don't you you know that only God is good? Why do you call me good? Don't you know only God is good? The implied truth here is that this young ruler is in fact speaking with God in the flesh. This is the implied That Jesus is giving him if you think I'm good and you know only God is good one plus one equals two you're a bright guy you're an educated guy if you think only God is good and you're saying I'm good I'm more than just a teacher in other words do you know who I actually am not just a distinguished teacher not just a good and excellent teacher with actual, accurate information, but God incarnate. And then Jesus briefly recites commandments 5 through 9 of the Ten Commandments. He takes him through these five commandments. Do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, so commandments 5 through 9. And each of these directly involve human relationships. All of these are human relationship related. You don't like your neighbor stealing from you, right? It's good to have good relationships with mom and dad, right? These are all relationship-based commandments, each of these. And this is Jesus subtly laying the framework that the standard of God is perfection. He's subtly laying that framework that the standard of God is not that you did a pretty good job, but did you keep them? The emphasis was, have you kept them? Not... Did you try and keep them? Do you see what he said? You, have you been trying to keep the commandments? He didn't say that. He said, have you kept them? Laying that framework. And the ruler's response? I've nailed it. You can check that one. If that was the answer, you can check it off, because that I've done. I've kept them all. all the, at least... But he only named the relationship ones because those I have kept. If I murdered anyone, no. Can't remember the last time I stole something. Right? Starts going through the list. I have a good relationship with mom and dad. You can have a good relationship with mom and dad and have failed somewhere along the way in honoring them. Amen? To that? Your parents are saying amen, I'm sure. But no matter how long you've been a parent or a child, if you search long enough, you'll find a time where you did not honor. But he's saying, check, I've done that. I've kept all these from my youth. And by the way, you have to wonder, when you read this, no matter how many times you've heard this story, but you have to wonder how things might have gone if the man's answer had been different. What if the man had answered something like this? Jesus, I've broken several of those commandments, but what can I do? What if that was the answer? Instead of, I've done all that. You have been talking to someone that you're trying to convince them that all people are sinners, and they're like, look, we all do wrong things. But that doesn't make it sin. And they believe this. They really believe that telling a little white lie or cussing someone out just once in your lifetime is just, uh, it's a little mark on it, but otherwise it's still a brand new car. Right? And so we're, we're using our logic and our standard, but we're not ever supposed to judge ourselves by our own standard. We judge ourselves by the standard of God's holiness. It's a bigger wall to climb, isn't it? He's clearly not familiar with Jesus' deeper teaching on what it means to actually keep the commandments. He's not aware that Jesus has taught on this definitively. And what did he say in Matthew chapter 5? Well, in Matthew 5, 21, he said this, this will sound familiar as well. He said, You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders in danger of the judgment. You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whatever, or whoever, I'm sorry, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable that one of your members should perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Now, that's a heavy teaching from Jesus, isn't it? This is where he takes the commandments, and, if, and, and anyone that's hearing, he says, hey, have you all kept these commandments? Yes, we've all kept the commandments. Okay, now what is your thought life like? Oh. See, the sins of our eyes, and the sins of our hearts, and the sins of our minds are enough merit to send us to hell. Do we understand that? The sins of our mind, our eyes... Our thought life is enough to merit God's holiness saying, you've compromised it to the point that you're under judgment. It's not just the sins of actual physical actions. We understand that. This is what Jesus is getting. It's not just the physical action, physical murder, physical adultery, physical stealing, cursing out one's parents with the mouth rather than just in the mind. You know, sometimes you've seen kids kind of, they kind of turn and walk away and mutter something under their breath. Parents say, what'd you say? Right? Sometimes they don't say anything, but they're thinking it. And God knows our thoughts. And why is Jesus raised the standard when he teaches more in-depth on this? He doesn't get this in-depth teaching this man, but he does in Matthew 5. And so what is he saying? Well, he's emphasizing to us that God's standard of perfection, God's holiness, is perfect. Snow looks really white until it gets beside a dirty sheep, right? Or sheep looks really white until it gets beside... Let me turn that around. Sheep look really white until they get beside white snow, right? And that's when we can see the difference of where we don't measure up to God's perfection. And so Jesus, understanding that this wealthy ruler is still unaware. He's still unaware of the depth of his sinful condition. He takes him away from the sins related to man. And then he asks him a question that underscores the commandments related to God. He says in verse 21, I've kept all these since my youth. So Jesus in verse 22 takes him in a little different direction. See, commandments one through four, uh, they're vertical all the way through keeping the Sabbath. Uh, They're vertical. Shall not have any gods before me, right? Those are ones to God. There's no other gods before him. Don't make a graven image. All those things are what? Idolatry. The 10th commandment, uh, it's about coveting. And although the 10th commandment mentions human relationship, it really goes back to the first commandments of idolatry. Because the things you covet and you want rather than wanting to worship God. If you're taking notes, let's look at this request that Jesus makes of this man in verse 22. Under the title request here, uh, when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will treasure in heaven, come and follow me. In Mark 10, 21, Mark also tells us this. And this is really good to kind of, again, always look at the other uh, places where the same story is told and you'll gain a little bit of other nuggets of insight. Mark tells us, it says this, listen, then Jesus looking at him, loved him. Then Je- Before he says this, Mark says he looked at him and Mark was given him the knowledge of the Holy Spirit that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Almost like This man has no idea how much I love him and how his thinking is still wrong. He still thinks he can earn the favor of God. Jesus, in his love, in his wisdom, says essentially, here's what I want you to do. Since you've kept commandments 5 through 9, which Jesus knows he hasn't, over the course of your lifetime, I'll buy your argument for just a second, that you've kept them all, I've got a challenge for you. And Jesus will always say exactly what needs to be said to convict us and to bring us to that place of the valley of decision, to bring us that place of surrender. Why? That we can receive the outpouring of grace that we can receive God's mercy. He has to bring us that place that we can receive that. Do you believe that, church? That Jesus will always give us what we need to come to the place of genuine humility and surrender. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. The world actually doesn't love us. The world will lie to us but doesn't love us. And Jesus says these words, I want you to say everything you have, Give it to the poor and follow me. Ouch. If you're the rich young ruler. These words sink in like a thousand pound weight on him. He was very rich. Words that uh, would lift his weight of sin and guilt were the last words he was hoping to hear. This was not the response he was expecting or hoping to hear. Maybe he, he would have been fine when Jesus said, all right, here's what I want you to do. Make a huge donation to the temple. Got it. Where's my checkbook? I'll make a big donation. I'll even, can you name a pew after me while you're at it, right? Make a big donation to the temple, not a problem. I don't even care if it's tax deductible. I'll make a big donation to the temple. No big deal. Then not ask him that. Maybe Jesus says, just go tell five of your closest friends that you have caught religion, and you're now one of those born agains. It'll be embarrassing, but you'll still have your money. Okay? Doesn't do that either. Maybe something like in the Old Testament, uh, uh, Elisha the prophet, when the Naaman, the Syrian um, commander, uh, had leprosy, and he was told to go wash in the Jordan seven times. Maybe I can get something crazy like that. Everyone looking at me like a nut, but at the same time, the bank account is still secure. He doesn't get any of those things. No. The request was like an arrow to the heart because Jesus knows exactly what's holding each person up. Right there. Look at the next part of our text. The rejection. If you're taking notes, verse 23, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. He couldn't do it. It's one thing to recognize that we need Jesus that we need his counsel, that we need to know how to be saved, but it's quite another thing to actually obey his command and then receive eternal life. To know it is not enough. To obey it is the only way. And for Luke, he tells us why this man couldn't do it. Luke tells us why he couldn't do it. you may have read over this and glossed over it, but what strikes me is the simplicity in which Luke respond, the simplicity in which Luke describes his response, and says it's self-explanatory. What does Luke say? When he heard this, he became very sorrowful. That's just a description of his demeanor. But then it says, what? Because he was very rich. Luke is saying, I don't need to explain any more about this. If you've lived on planet Earth, you understand why he said no. Isn't that interesting? Luke is saying, hey, Luke, why did he say no? Let me give you a novel of reasons. Luke said no, because he's really rich. Anyone who's spent any amount of time living among other people knows that money is a massive holdup for many. And that's what Luke was saying. It's like it's axiomatic. If there's a lot of money there, there's a huge decision to make. There's a lot to give up, what Jesus is asking. It's been well said, in order to take his hand, we have to let go of what's in ours. True? You're holding two money bags, and you're drowning. (laughs) You're going to have to let them go to grab that life preserver. And life is better at that point than the money bags, isn't it? They're going to drag you down. And for this man, wealth, position, power, reputation, lifestyle will those things be outweighed by eternal life? It's amazing the impact that just money has. I, I was having lunch um, earlier this year with a former business colleague, and uh, his daughter goes to one of the area high schools here. And he said to me, he goes, You know, it's the weirdest. He goes, Today, uh, he's not a believer. But he says to me, he goes, uh, yeah, my daughter was saying that the other high school they were playing a certain sport against, that on social media, the one high school girls from one high school were saying to the other high school girls from the other high school, we're the rich school, not you. Where do they get these ideas? It's as ancient as the Garden of Eden. Wealth is full of pride, It's full of this belief that if you have money, you can have everything you want. You're more important than other people. You're better than other people. You actually can achieve more satisfaction in life. It's right here in Richmond. If I named the two high schools, you'd know exactly who they are. And this isn't unusual, folks. People are following the Pied Piper of the enemies. Just plan to say reel them in. They can't give this stuff up. They'll believe in it. Remember Paul's response? Paul had that question, what must I do to be saved? His response to the Philippian jailer was, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. That seems awful simple, but it's the, the second part. He says, believe it in the heart. The head knowledge of saying, I think, I'm pretty sure Jesus has the answers. The heart knowledge of saying, I will accept and follow what he said. Confessing. At the heart level is trusting in Christ, no matter what the cost. And Jesus says, take up the cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Jesus doesn't make this specific request of every potential convert. You can't apply that this is, this is not something that Jesus has said to every single person that's ever been saved. Sell everything you have and you can be saved. Wealthy men have been saved. D.L. Moody, much of his crusades throughout Europe uh, you know, were financed by some of uh, his Christian friends who had, come, who had become uh, saved and God allowed them to continue to have wealth, and they gave it out tremendously in support of the ministry of reaching people, both in the United States, Europe, and even all around the world. Uh, but Jesus will ask this request from time to time, both uh, at the point of salvation later. Understand that a doctor doesn't give the same advice to every single patient. Jesus is going to pinpoint where the problem is. And Jesus knows the roadblock for each person. For the woman at the well, hers wasn't wealth, was it? No. It was immorality, and she didn't believe she could even be worthy of salvation. Well, of course, no one is worthy of salvation, but she probably believed she was beyond the means of God's grace. So she was kind of, oh, I'm too dirty to be saved. I'm too immoral to be saved. This is what the prostitutes that Jesus brought to saving faith, they had that feeling. Well, no one would save me. Money wasn't their issue. But for this man, it is the wealth, the power, the position in life. He had lived an outwardly moral life, but his God was wealth. He had lived an outwardly moral life, but his God was money. Jesus, remember, said in, back in Luke chapter 16, 13. We studied this chapter, if you recall. No servant can serve two masters, for he either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, mammon being money. He made it clear that you come to him, he's Lord. No longer is it your bank account. Wealth in and of itself Understand, wealth in and of itself is not wrong. C.H. Spurgeon said, poverty is no virtue and wealth is no sin. Wealth in and of itself, some people, but not everybody can handle wealth. Not even everybody can handle middle class wealth or lower middle class wealth. If you look at kind of the stratus of society. But the accumulation of money and the lifestyle that money can buy, it has a strong gravitational pull, doesn't it? Strong pull. The Scriptures warn of this. The scriptures warn a lot about this. Old Testament and New Testament. W.H. Griffith Thomas said, making, The making of money is necessary for daily living, but money-making is apt to degenerate into money-loving. And the deceitfulness of riches enters in and spoils our life. Did you hear what he said? He said that money-making which is necessary for, you know, going to Martin's, right? Paying Dominion Power, all those kind of things, buying new tar- tires for the car, that money-making is necessary, but oftentimes it degenerates into money-loving, especially when more of it starts to come in. Today, many Americans uh, have the lifestyle that for the 6,000 years in prior history was only reserved for the wealthy. Do you realize that? We live in a time in history that almost at any other point in the past, the most lavish of Roman uh, aristocrats would say, "You have 400 channels on your TV, you have two cars, you have this, you have that." They wouldn't have, Of course they didn't have those things, but in relative terms, we have more food in the pantry than they did. and the refrigerator and things like that. So the, the lifestyle we have today is equivalent to many wealthy in many past. Uh, civilizations and societies. But this, this kind of crossroads for the rich young ruler is not a once-in-a-lifetime thing, even if for us as believers. It actually will cross our paths more than a few times in life. Do you agree with what I'm saying? It'll cross our paths more than once. I wasn't always a pastor, as you guys know. I was in the business world. In 1999, when I, I got hired by Microsoft, I was with a Canadian company before that. When I got hired in 1999, we made the decision my wife would stay home, which... I didn't want that decision at first. I was like, no, you're not staying home. We want double income. We have all this, you know, all this. And I was saved, too. And I was like, so finally, the Lord convinced me I was wrong. So she was going to stay home. And, and a, a week later, I get a call from uh, the recruiter and saying, we want to hire you. And they doubled my salary, so it made the same exact as me and my wife were making combined. God kind of handled that, didn't he? Right? So it was the exact same. It was like, boom, to the dollar, to the dollar. When you kind of put, come out on it, I got the, but, but that was in 1999, and so, and then in 2000, at that time, the stock price was like 118. Of course, then the Justice Department came and all this stuff happened. But I went to Dallas, Texas on a trip, uh, and it was a team building kind of thing at what my boss's boss's house, $800,000 home. Steve Berline of the Dallas Cowboys was living across the street from him. And uh, $800,000 home, and my boss had already sold enough shares that both of them, uh, both of them had between $800,000 and $1 million in stock options cashed out, and they were still receiving the salaries. So th- these were higher up, but my, they knew I was a Christian. And my, my boss, not my boss's boss, my boss says to me, he goes, Tim, someday you'll be this rich. I'll never forget it. Summer of 2000, I'm at the house, and I'm seeing the pool and all this stuff, and he goes, someday you'll be the threat. Instantly, the Holy Spirit said, you know you won't. <laughs> I heard it as loud and clear in my head, no, you won't. And I don't want you to want that. I don't want you to want, you're not, I thought the glory Lord said, you're not here for that. That's not why you're here. Uh, three times in my career, I almost hit—I almost hit the payoff mortgage kind of bonus year, and all three times it failed, and God never let it happen. And I understood that, you know, that God was just showing me that these things really are a tremendous gravitational pull. Luke said it's because he had a lot of money. Looks like it's self-explanatory. It is a massive weight. Many of us when we came to Christ, we had a lot less then than we have now. It was easy to come to Christ at that point, wasn't it? I remember when we got saved in 1995, uh, you know, I would have gladly accepted a pastor's salary then because we were eating ramen noodles and trying to pay off college loans, right? But perspective changes with time. That's why I said this nexus point, this decision point will happen again in our lifetime and we'll have to make decisions and say you in my life when I was in the business world many times I knew there's a fine line between doing your best work and saying no to all the other things that everyone else is chasing. Very fine line. And I always said yes to Jesus and it cost me again and again and again. But it didn't cost me spiritually, it just cost me with the higher ups that were saying, he's not really committed to the big time. Doesn't really want to climb all the way where everybody else wants to climb. and But you know what? Heaven, Jesus said, when you get there, that's where it's all going to matter, right? This life and the life to come. Many in the body of Christ are much like the rich young ruler still right now. They're at these decision points in life. And Jesus is asking again and again, is it me or is it your career? Is it me or is it everything you can attain? Is it me or all that you have as far as your reputation and all these things. And it's, Again, I, I, I want all of you in this body, if God's called you to have a career and to do what you're doing, I want you to do well. We actually need some amount of money to actually run this place. So I want you to do somewhat well, <laughs> but I don't want you to do so well that you leave God. You know, follow me? That you say, I don't, I don't have time for the Lord anymore because I'm chasing these things. This guy couldn't come to Jesus at the point of salvation, but this same decision point comes after salvation too. It'll visit you maybe every couple of years. I was talking to some believers about 15 years ago. I'd only been saved for about five years, and, and I was talking to some older believers, and they were telling me about some friends of theirs, uh, that when they were younger, man, they would go anywhere for Christ, and they lived for the Lord, And but then not long after they had, told, you know, after they had been saved for many years, they said they could never go do that again. They were just too comfortable. And that's a sad, sad statement to make, and I don't know that I'd want to make that statement to the Lord because that's who we'll answer to one day. Let's look at this uh, last point here, reflection. Reflection. Uh, so Jesus, when he saw that he became very sorrowful, verse, uh, verse 24, Jesus says these words, how hard it is for those who have riches to come or to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You've probably heard you know, that there was a small, narrow uh, area that um, had a pass through that was, you couldn't even really get a camel through. You had to get off the camel and, and worm your way through to get through, and they call it the eye of the needle. But even as a kid, I remember the first time I heard it, I think of like, how could a camel get in? <laughs> you ever thought that as a kid? You're like, a needle? Yeah, a camel's not going to fit. Uh, pretty, pretty sure that's not going to work. But whether you think of it as like a child, and that's not so bad, because in last week Jesus said you might want to come as a little child if you want to understand the things of God. It would be just as hard as for a real camel to get through a real eye of a needle, is what Jesus is saying, but also the understanding of the, the pass through there, coming through, you've got a valley with a narrow pass. you have to get off, and everything else has to come out of your hands to get through. And that's the same point that Jesus is making. It's very difficult for people to get off their high place, let go of the things they have, to pass through to eternal life. I've heard people really look at this verse and and over-spiritualize it. Jesus, uh, he reflected... Not only in the man's response, he's not just reflecting on this man's response, but I believe Jesus is reflecting on his observation from heaven of all of mankind, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the end of the age. He's seen everyone that's ever been wealthy. And Jesus could see the thousands and thousands upon thousands, past, present, and future, that couldn't look past this life to eternity. They thought about it, but they couldn't really make that leap to say, yes, I want to be saved, and I don't care about what what it cost me in this lifetime. Make no mistake, again, you've probably heard people say, now Jesus is not saying that it's really hard to get... No, he is saying. I've heard people really over-spiritualize it. Jesus is saying exactly what he says. No mistake about it, while it's absolutely true that there are saints and believers, some who came to Christ with wealth and some who died with wealth, Again, wealth is not in and of itself a sin issue. While he's absolutely, Jesus knows that Joseph of Arimathea, Abraham had wealth, David had wealth. But it's simultaneously true that having great wealth is a great hindrance. One doesn't, they're not mutually, one doesn't eradicate the other. He's saying exactly what he means how hard it is for those that have riches to enter. The kingdom of God. See, the allure is strong. The desires of the flesh are strong, and uh, when we have very little, they're strong. But they're even exponentially strong. The more we have to give up, true. Someone says, "Hey, give, give everything in your wallet to this offering," and you open it up, and you have a dollar. You're like, "I'll do that. <laughs> I'm feeling full of faith." But if you forgot that this was the one time this year you took out $1000 in cash and you never carry cash and the, you forgot because you say I never carry cash and you're like oh my that was the last night I took out a thousand for our vacation and I just said yes I'll gladly do it right There's a little different stuff going on down in the stomach area right <laughs> Faith is put to the test at that point It's harder Jesus said, remember back in chapter 17, he said, remember Lot's wife. Why? He said she couldn't take her eyes off the stuff. She couldn't let go of it all. She kept looking back to her own destruction. She needed salvation, but she couldn't let go of the world and all the stuff that she had acquired there in Sodom. All the stuff that her and Lot had piled up. That's why John, at the closing of 1 John, says, little children, keep yourselves from idle. He also said in 1 John, the things of this world are passing away. Paul told the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 to warn the church of the love of money. And he said that many had strayed from the faith because of their love of money, piercing themselves with sorrow. James says in James chapter 4 and 5, he was writing to the church and those who are striving for wealth and all that the world has to offer, he wrote, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. I could read on. Ecclesiastes in the Psalms. Again and again, the Bible warns us. And isn't it, not, isn't it ironic that the rich young ruler walks away sorrowful? Money isn't supposed to buy you sorrow, is it? He walks away sorrowful, but you know how many people that have money in Hollywood and business are on antidepressants and some have committed suicide and you say, how in the world do they commit suicide? They had everything. They had seven homes on every continent other than Antarctica because it doesn't bring what it promises. Time and time again we see people keep trying to say, well it didn't work for Elvis Presley but I know it'll work for me. It didn't work for Howard Hughes, but I know it'll work for me. It didn't work for Michael Jackson, but I know it'll work for me. The deceitfulness of riches, Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4. He says those words, the deceitfulness of riches. He says it actually tricks people again and again and again, and even into eternity. The disciples, they thought it was hopeless then. They said, well, then who can be saved? Now, what they're saying, they're not saying that it's just about wealthy people. They're saying the... the yearning of our flesh. How do we get past the yearnings of our flesh? Well, they knew everyone struggles with the flesh. I go back to what happens if our response is different. See, Jesus knows how to help us. What happens if the rich young ruler says, help me, Jesus, follow this command. I want to follow it, but I don't know how. That's a different answer, isn't it? Instead of just walking away sad, if we say, Lord, help me to do that. You know, as F.B. Meyer that said, if you can't do something, say, Lord, help me to believe it. But at least you got to start there. Amen? Amen. If the rich young ruler had said those words, Jesus said, ah, I'll help you do it. But he doesn't. He'll help... Wherever our faith line is, God wants to move it a lot further forward. Amen? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. C.T. Studd in 1887. You know, he inherited, uh, he was part of the Cambridge Seven. He got saved. He was a world-famous cricket player in in, in England. And uh, when he got saved uh, for a while there, he kind of wrestled with what should he do with his salvation. Finally came to the conclusion he was born into a really wealthy aristocrat family there in, in England. His, his father had gotten saved too, uh, and just the whole family went through a transformation. But he became part of the Cambridge Seven, ends up going to China uh, to get into mission work there. Uh, but he inherits, while he's in China, uh, in 1887 when his father passes, he inherits um, 29,000 in British pounds. Now right now, the currency exchange rate, you have to spend fifty one. 51 as of this morning, $1.51 to get a dollar of British pounds. But 29,000 pounds in 1887 is a lot more than 29,000 pounds in today's dollars. With the inflation, if you do 20 to 30 times that amount, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 700000 to a $1 million. And then he says... And matter of fact, the local constable there, the British the British constable, he says, "I want to give this money to missions." The guy says, "Young man, if you lost your mind, I'm going to give you a couple of weeks to think about this." But he doesn't change his mind. He ended up giving five thousand. He gives five thousand to D.L. Moody. He gives five thousand to George Mueller. Five thousand to uh, a preacher by the name of Holland, who preached to uh, a lot of the poor in London. Five thousand to Frederick Booth Tucker, who was William Booth's son-in-law, who had started the Salvation Army ministry in India. And he was determined because he said, I'm it in the bank of heaven. He said, that's what I'm depositing it there. And he gave those things up. And he was the one, I'll come to a close here. He was the one that went on to say, he said, only one life so soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. And Jesus says here, surely I say to you, no one who gives what I ask Him to give. And what God asks you to give will may not be the same as what He asked me to give, but rest assuredly, whatever He asks you to give will be something that will be costly to you personally, but valuable for what He'll do with it. Amen? It can be time, it can be talent, it can be treasures, it can be some combination of all three, but again and again in life, He will keep bringing us at that point and say, hey, I want you to give that up for me. I want you to go uh, help some foster kids. I want you to go and share with those kids about here. I want you to write a check to that organization. Oh, I don't really want to do that. I was looking forward to getting a new lawnmower this spring. I was like, I'll make sure the other one works another year. Those kind of things that God just kind of speaks to us because only what's done for him will last. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this morning you remind us just as you looked at the rich young ruler it says you loved him and you love us enough lord to share with us what we need to hear not necessarily what we want to hear and lord we know that your salvation lord is worth more you said what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or what will a man give in exchange for his soul and lord the rich young ruler knew that he couldn't purchase salvation But Lord, we're thankful that you have purchased salvation by your death on the cross. You gave it all that we would be saved. And Lord, we just come before you now. We first just want to say thank you for saving us. But Lord, we also ask that you would increase our faith to take steps that you've asked us to take, to not be deceived by riches or just the pursuit of them. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.